five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Light sails, that is really thin sails that are propelled by photons flying around in space, have been proposed as an alternative propulsion method to travel the cosmos for a long time. Now there is a startup company in France working to commercialize them. Their co-founder and CEO, Andrew Nutter, is our guest this week. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast and we'll also put that link in the episode notes and lastly you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space hey space enthusiasts it's time for another episode with another european space startup i'm very happy today to have andrew nutter he's the co-founder and the ceo of gamma space welcome andrew thank you delighted to be here Great. And so why don't we start off as we always start up with startups and uh, could you just give us the short elevator pitch on what Gamma Space is doing, please? Gamma is building solar sails to provide free and continuous space propulsion using sunlight. Uh, the existing propulsion systems today are all constrained by the need to carry fuel. And once your fuel tank is empty, that's it. You can't influence your trajectory anymore. And solar sailing changes that paradigm. This fuel constraint that has existed since the beginning of space travel disappears. So with a sail, you can accelerate through space as long as there's enough light. And broadly, that allows you to go far. It allows you to go fast or even maintain a position in an unstable orbit. And that opens up all sorts of new possibilities for affordable space transport. Okay, so we've got to go back and ask another question we, we, we typically ask. I mean, this is sort of like, you know, solar sails, and we talk obviously much more in detail about the tech and what, what it exactly looks like. But it's sort of at the moment, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I would consider it a, a niche product. Uh, how, how did you guys come up with this? Is it sort of like you're, you're, you're sailing on the oceans and you're like, oh, I like space and let's do solar sails? Or what's, what's the origin story there? The origin story actually goes back a long, long way. So Galileo and Kepler were writing about sailing through space on the solar winds. And we're not actually using the solar winds, we're using photonic radius of pressure. And, and people have been working on this concept for a long time. It's been demonstrated in space. And now if you're sending any probe into space, you need to take it into account because it can affect the trajectory. Uh, the dream has always been, well, can we build large enough sails to go very far and very fast. Um, and, and so this is always, we're, we're driven by that dream, but the origin story for us is, is around, okay, well, now that we've quote unquote conquered space very close to Earth, 
now we need to go further out and propulsion systems today are limited. So what do we need to build the infrastructure and that future space autonomy? And solar cells, I think, is, is a question of timing. A lot of the things that we're using today were not available until very recently. So, so it's more about timing and seizing that opportunity today. Okay, so, but yeah, so you mentioned part of the history there and it's, it's sort of kind of almost romantic, right? It's like sailing and mm -hmm. harkens back to the olden days of like, you know, great sail ships. Why hasn't it, like you said, the, the concept is quite old and known. Why hasn't it been used before? Because for example, you mentioned, um, you know, it's good to go long distances and we shall talk about that more, more detail. But, you know, if we think about some of the objects we've sent very far, and mm -hmm. I hope I'm not saying anything wrong here, and you correct me, I think the Voyager probes, for example, um, they're, they're running basically on on, on, on RTGs, on radioisotopic uh, thermal generators. Um, why haven't we used solar cells so far? It's, it's, it's a good question. The, everything we've sent out to space gets most of its energy very early on. So it's the chemical propulsion at the beginning that throws, throws things very far. The Voyager probes are just coasting. They're not changing their trajectory. Mm. The, the RTG is just providing power to keep things alive and be able to communicate. But the, they, they can't say, okay, we're going to change direction and go somewhere else. They've run out of fuel. They don't have any more propulsion. Uh, the reason why it hasn't been done is because the technology was not available until recently. And, and one of the properties, and I think we'll come to it in terms of the technology, is that we're using very, very thin films um, that are quite difficult to manipulate. And you can't really test them on Earth because on Earth you've got air, you've got, you need a huge amount of space, and you've got other forces acting on it. So you can only test it in space. And until recently, getting to space was very expensive. And thanks to SpaceX, we can now get to space for cheap, relatively cheap, and test things and demonstrate it's a, it's a means of propulsion that, that can work. So I think it's a timing issue. We're, we're lucky to be able to do it now. And other people have been working on it and there have been other missions in the past. But we wanna be the first ones to really demonstrate propulsion going from point A to point B using only the solar radiative pressure. Mm -hmm. So just kind of to finish up on, on the history, because I think it's interesting. I mean, it sounds as a summary that it's sort of like, we can do it now because the material science has advanced, but we can mm -hmm. talk about that in more detail. But, you know, we had this, um, so leaving aside Galileo and sort of the really old, concepts, it feels like we had this, you know, obviously golden age of space or the first golden age of space. Yes. I hope it's not going to be the only one um, like in the, in the sixties where I think just a ton of stuff has been tried, right? Even if it mm -hmm. was arguably to some extent ahead of its time, Did, have, have we tried like solar sails? Have the space agencies, like if it's the Soviets or the Americans, have we tried stuff like that? Like a few decades ago? Yeah. So we, so we've tried an, a number of different things and I think solar sails really got popularized in the 60s and 70s as Arthur C. Clarke, Carl Sagan went on television and he was a very famous guy in the US and popularized the idea of sailing on lights. So, so the Soviets worked on missions, uh, the uh, NASA, JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency, and some of those have actually put sails into space. So the Japanese Space Agency put a fairly large sail called uh, on a mission to Venus and um, and it was a demonstrator, so they tested a number of things using a fairly large sail. And NASA's got a number of missions underway, um, and they tested something called Nanosail, which was a very small one just to demonstrate you could deploy something and, uh, and in space and, and kind of orient it. Um, 
I think the ones that kind of captured the most imagination and, and up until today probably demonstrated the most is, is the Planetary Society, um, a not-for-profit group of enthusiasts who managed to put a solar cell into space on a CubeSat, so very small, very cheap satellites and deploying a, a fairly large sail um, to demonstrate that there is an effect from solar radiative pressure on a on a large surface in space, a large reflective surface in space. So we're not we're not the first by any stretch of the imagination. Um, there's a community of people working on this in different agencies. Uh, there's many researchers doing their PhDs on on solar sail navigation, and and a number of scientists saying, okay, well, once we unlock this new technology, what, what can we do from a science perspective? So there's, there's a huge pull from the scientific community to actually be able to, to prove that it works and, and make it work. It's interesting, actually, I, I was going to ask you about Planetary Society because that I think they crowdfunded that, right? Correct. Yeah, they, they, they raised a few million um, crowdfunding it. There were some very pretty famous people who got involved, uh, notably Carl Sagan at the beginning, uh, Lou Friedman and others. And, um, and they crowdfunded a mission to space. And, and that's really a timing thing. This was quite recently because they were allowed, they could get to space for cheap using, you know, get to space for cheap on a small spacecraft. So CubeSat, we're not talking about hundreds of kilos anymore. We're, we're talking a few kilos and, and a very simple concept to show that it can work. And you can deploy a very large surface from a very small spacecraft. Okay, and and just on a planetary society mission, like um, because that was a few years. I think it was just a few years ago. Like I said, it was very recent. Like, is there any like conclusion yet about sort of the, uh, the, the what were the missions were the mission objectives fulfilled? Was there any like interesting you know experiences we've learned from this? Yeah, so so it completely demonstrated that you can deploy a very thin, very large surface from a small spacecraft. It demonstrated that there is an effect of the sun and it pushes on the sail. And, and they had a, a fairly simple steering law when it's in orbit around the Earth. Um, I guess what's missing today, because there was one constraint, which was they had to deploy at an altitude that's still quite low. So most of the things we put into space are below a thousand kilometers. And below a thousand kilometers, there is still a remnant of atmosphere. And so that atmosphere will, will, will act on a very thin, very large surface and create drag. Right. So you're, you're always losing altitude because of the drag. So it's quite hard to kind of distinguish between what is pushing you from the solar radiative pressure versus what's the drag. And so our next mission, I think we'll come to this, is, is really demonstrating the full performance of a solar sail outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, well... We'll definitely come to that, but sort of let's segue a little bit um, mm -hmm. into the tech there because that's super interesting. And I must admit, I don't know too much about it yet. But for example, you mentioned sort of like the you know, it, it has been it was demonstrated by the Planetary Society mission that you can unfold something. So how would one one imagine that? Is that literally sort of like similar to like you know folding up a, a parachute in a sort of very neat way, so to make sure it unfolds correctly again? And then is that something that happens sort of um, you know? for example, on its own, or do you need like any sort of like very sophisticated assisted deployment mm -hmm. system to make that happen? Yeah. So, so the material, first of all, is, is basically a, a very large mirror and it's a very thin reflected film that will reflect the photons from the sun to push the spacecraft. 
Uh, the, the film that we're using at the moment on our first mission is 2.5 microns thick. So this is much thinner than a human hair. And the reason we need to do that is because we get more performance if we have something that's very light and very large. Um, at the same time, if it's thin, it means you can package more into a small space. And so the, the folding, I mean, I, I've learned a lot about folding um, over the last few years. And there's different methods. And some methods have certain advantages, but ultimately you're looking at your, your packing efficiency. So how much can you put into a given space? And that will determine basically how large a sail can you put into space from a given space draft. So it's it's basically folds like a, like a, I don't know if you you can visualize a um, a millefeuille like the French cake where you kind of layer you put layers one on top of the other and you keep on folding back towards the center and you just layer it up and up and up and and then you squash it down. That's the the very so simple maybe, version. Yeah, I, so I, I I can imagine the French dessert you're talking about, but. I don't know where all of our listeners can. So let's maybe try to quantify a little bit. So like, let's say we um, have like a three U cube set or something. I don't know what mm -hmm. you guys are using. You can tell us in a second. Using a six U cube Okay. Okay. Let's take the six U. So the six U with your current folding um, efficiency, mm -hmm. so to say, how large a sale does that result yep. in? So, so in this, so our six U spacecraft, which is basically the size of a large toaster, will deploy 73 square meters. Of sail, seventy-three square meters of sail is is larger than the average Parisian apartments. So it's it's quite a large surface in a very small package. And between our first mission and our second mission, we've actually managed to increase our efficiency. So we can deploy that surface from an even smaller volume of space. So I think we've increased by order of fourteen times relative to where we were at the beginning. Interesting. And I think, by the way, the size uh, comparison you mentioned says something both about your cell and Parisian apartments, but that's not that side. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Completely. Um, I'm wondering, so, so you mentioned like this is obviously just a fraction of the width of the width of a human hair. So mm -hmm. I'm just thinking like uh, space and, uh, you know, especially ultimately when you go um, outside, like if you go into deep space, right, as we will talk yes. about your next missions, right? But I'm thinking like, micrometeorites, really harsh radiation, like uh, how much is the material affected by that? And sort of like, what do you think is the duration of, of, of something like this? Yeah, it's a good question. I, th I think ultimately, you know that there's going to be a, a gradual deterioration in the performance. So the main thing we're interested in is uh, the structural rigidity of the whole system and the reflectivity of the sail. Uh, the structural integrity is is basically reinforced by other things. So for example, we're at the moment we're, we're integrating Kevlar wire throughout the sail. So that will not break. But what we might have is little, little holes from micrometeorites piercing the sail. And this, the sail's so thin that that micrometeorite will just make a hole and continue on its journey. It's not going to hit something hard where there'll be a, an explosion or something you can, you can imagine. Um, otherwise, so so over time we'll have a few holes in the sailed material, but the structure won't change, and the reflectivity over time, in terms of efficiency, will probably go down gradually over time. So so we take that into account with the models we have. We could theoretically sail for a very very long time, hundreds of years, because we don't carry um, 
we don't carry any propellants, but the material of the sail will deteriorate over time and will lose efficiency. And so if we move on to maybe some of the other specs, so mm -hmm. um, yeah, we talked about size. Oh, by the way, I should ask, so and uh, again, how much does something like this then weigh? Is this like a few so kilograms or how, how should one imagine this? The, the, the sail itself is in the order of a few hundred grams. So okay. incredibly light. The, the heavy stuff is, is all the rest, the satellite bus, the components within that. Um, but the sail itself is incredibly cheap. And that, that's what's interesting. If you, can, if you can put a bigger sail, it doesn't add that much mass. But ultimately, I guess uh, you have the satellite bus, but there's, many th there's some things that would be on a regular satellite bus that you don't need, right? So mm -hmm. it's really yes. the payload plus some super critical exactly. subsystems, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And we okay. could... I mean, yeah, there's, there's things that we need. So I don't know how technical we, we need to get, but there's things like reaction wheels that can apply yeah. torque to this satellite. So we can actually change where the sail is pointing so we can control our destination. Um, those things need to be there because we depend on them um, and they're quite heavy. So, so there's, there's still a number of things that are, that are heavy. And over time, as technology improves, we can find alternatives to that. But currently, we, we rely on existing off-the-shelf components that are quite heavy. Yeah. And I, and I guess there'll obviously be some primary payload because you want to do something, right? Like a sensor exactly. to observe something, right? And then you want to yeah. get that data back. So there's got to be some sort of, I guess, radio. Exactly. Right? And then there's got to be something yeah. to, like we said before, to power the radio. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll have solar panels that are off-the-shelf today. Um, the Japanese mission, Icarus, actually integrated panels into the sail material, so very thin solar panels. So we can do propulsion plus power from a single subsystem. Oh, okay. Interesting. Because my next question is going to be, is that like solar panels, I'm, I'm picturing this like big arrays, right? And I don't know precisely now how heavy they are. I would have thought, is, is it not better to have sort of like something that has really high um, energy density, like a, like a radioisotope uh, generator again? Yeah, yeah. I mean... We're also about reducing the cost of access, and the raise your top generator is, is expensive. Solar cells sure. are off the shelf. We can use them. We can buy. There's, there's a catalog. You can pick the one you want. And we don't actually need a lot of power we, because we're using you know, power typically for, is for electric propulsion, um, and the, it's quite an energy-intense form of propulsion. Um, a solar cell doesn't need that. So we're just using um, power for to maintain communication links to, to power the batteries, to, to do a few kind of things on the system, which doesn't actually need a lot of power. Understood. And so if we move on to some of the other sort of interesting specs, so let's talk a little mm -hmm. about um, velocity and acceleration. And okay, I don't want to turn this into like a physics podcast at all, but I guess sort of like on, a, on the most basic level, like, you know, famous uh, Newton formula, F force equals mass times acceleration. And then sort of mm -hmm. your mass is like, we just went through your mass. It's, it's, it's quite low, which is great, right? The force, I also imagine, is actually really, really, really tiny, but it yes. seems like something that's it's always there. So does that mean you can exactly. kind of, you just could keep accelerating forever? Yes. The short answer is yes. And, and maybe we take a, a tiny step back just for your listeners to understand what, what's happening. So we're putting up a huge mirror in space, a very, very thin, very large mirror. And a photon has no mass, but it has momentum. So when you reflect a photon, it will transfer some of that momentum. So it's a little bit like you're playing a billiards and you hit one the white ball and it bounces. It transfers some of that momentum onto the thing that it bounces against. 
And, and that's really how the energy is transferred and what we're using. Um, and so indeed, the force of an individual photon is incredibly small, but and on force, you know, on, on Earth, you can't, you, you don't notice it because there's other forces that are much greater. But in space, if you have a large enough area, those photons can create enough force to accelerate a spacecraft. And as you rightly said, in space, there is no friction, there is no drag. So that acceleration can continue to accumulate over time. And we're talking, we're talking in the millimeters per second squared in terms of accelerations. And you know, over a, a few minutes, that doesn't do much, but over a day, over a week, over a month, that can really accumulate. And the really interesting thing is that the mechanics, to simplify it, are two things. One is you double the size of the sail relative to the mass. You double the force and you double the acceleration. And the second thing is, if you get closer to the sun, you're actually getting into a much more dense flow of photons. And therefore, if you can go closer to the sun, you can pick up tremendous speeds because there's just much more energy for you to capture and harvest. So ultimately, you can go incredibly fast. And if you're even thinking a little bit further out, um, Breakthrough Initiatives, for example, is a group of people working on trying to send miniature sun sails, uh, light sails to um, Alpha Centauri. So 20 light years, uh, 20, 20 years of transport going at 20% the speed of light. And these are tiny sails accelerated by artificial light. So giant lasers accelerating tiny, tiny sails to go to 20% the speed of light. So that, that, is, that is an objective that the community is interested in because finally we can leave our solar system and go and explore further out. But in the short term, uh, we're working with very small forces. We don't have giant lasers and we're not diving very close to the sun. So we can accelerate constantly over time, keep on accelerating and go to places we couldn't go before, um, but the speeds are not yet um, close to a percentage of the speed of light. Yeah, we'll come back to, I think, both um, project uh, breakthrough Starshot mm -hmm. um, and and sort of like what other missions you could do in, in a second. I just, you kind of mentioned sort of like um, being closer to sun accelerating. And I just, forgive me, I just cannot help opening a bracket here. And you may have seen there was a previous uh, podcast here with uh, Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course we had Oumuamua, the extrasolar yes. object coming through the solar system. And uh, Professor, Professor Loeb sort of maintains it is a possibility that, or one of the potential explanations is, because what we saw is Oumuamua accelerated basically. When it passed yes. the sun, which you couldn't really explain uh, very well. Mm -hmm. Some this is a very long discussion. I don't know. <laughs> is this something you guys have discussed <laughs> internally? Uh, yeah, we, we've definitely discussed, and we even had a film crew come and uh, come and uh, come and spend a bit of time with us because they're, they're doing a documentary on on that on that topic. Um, and so, is Oumuamua a giant light sail sent by an alien civilization? Maybe it is. It's interesting, and we should definitely investigate. Um, so, so it's something you know. These are the things we talk about <laughs> at lunch break and when we're having a coffee. Happy hour, because because yes. they are they are absolutely fascinating topics. So, if you had an intelligent civilization a long way away, they'd probably reach the same conclusion as us and say, well, you know, you can accelerate something to pretty high speeds um, by using light, so an abundant resource that we have on our doorstep. And yeah. and so if we've thought about it, then it's likely someone else has thought about it and maybe actually doing it. 
Yeah, it's, it's actually it's almost like, uh, you know, if I put on my venture capitalist hat, it's like the ultimate like startup use case validation, like aliens who are probably much smarter than <laughs> us have come up with this. But anyway, let's, yeah. let's close this, uh, let's close this bracket here and mm-hmm. sort of, okay, if we don't use um, giant cool lasers, um, um, you know, as is proposed by Project Breakthrough. Starshot, and, and by the way, as a note to listeners, um, not only was Professor Avi Loeb on this podcast in the previous um, episodes, if you want to listen to more about Umar Moore, you can do that. Um, also, uh, Dr. Pete Worden, who is leading uh, Project uh, Breakthrough Starshot, was on a previous episode of this podcast. But if we leave aside the use of giant cool lasers um, and sort of just use the existing um, available uh, photons, so to say, where do you see some of the sort of sweet spot use cases like for example would it make sense to use this to go to mars or is that just too close is it more like oh you want to go to like the outer solar system or even outside the solar system yeah so i think the features that we have with the solar cell is you can go further you can go faster after some time uh, but also that you can stay in one place you can do station keeping so a little bit like a helicopter hovering over certain points you can do that because it requires constant acceleration um, and the last feature is you can do things for a fraction of the cost because you're reducing your system requirements um, and you're reducing your need for, for fuel. So you tell that to scientists, to agencies, to companies and entrepreneurs, and it's like you're giving a new tool that's unlocking the next level of a game. So all these things you can do or even imagine before, now you can start conceiving. Um, and I should also make just a, a, quick, um, a quick comment. There's some things you can't do with the solar cell. So you can't carry humans, for example. Uh, people need a lot of stuff to keep them alive, and that takes up a lot of space, and it's very heavy. Uh, so that's not suitable for humans. Um, but here we have a platform, and now we need to think about what are the applications for that platform. And that's where it gets super exciting, because, and that's where we talk about asteroids, solar storms, or even leaving our solar system. Um, so I think when you think about applications and the business case, you need a, a good mental model to consider them. And I think that breaks into two components. One is you need to think about alternative forms of propulsion and navigation in terms of performance, in terms of cost, in terms of complexity and reliability. Are you better than other solutions for a given objective? And second, you need to think about timelines and markets. So when are the various transportation needs going to materialize? What's their value? And can your technology be mature enough and cost-effective to, to meet those needs at that time? Um, so on the first point, relative to other technologies, I don't think it's going to replace electric or chemical propulsion, but what it does do is expand the possibilities. So as an example, on Earth, um, the Ariane 6 rocket will be transported to Guyana on a boat that's using sails to reduce consumption by something like 40% and pick up speed. Uh, so can you combine a solar cell with other technologies? But the, the really big paradigm shift is when you look at the cost dimension. And Gamma will provide high-performance, reliable systems to reduce the cost to get further out. So what are the, what are the markets? What are the applications? Um, we're looking at a number of different things. If you look long-term, so you can look at leaving the solar system, dive by the sun, you harvest a lot of momentum from the dense flow of photons, and you, you, you go far out. And that, from a scientific perspective, is phenomenal. Um, and you can do all sorts of things. You can, you can go to very far out. You can turn back. You can look at um, 
you can look at light from a distant planet and that light is going to be warped by the sun's gravitational field. So you, you have basically, you're using the sun as a giant telescope to see things very far away. So, so this is something that will get a scientist super excited. In the medium term, you can do things like um, solar weather monitoring. So if you can imagine a line between the sun and our planet, um, there's a point in between where you're pulled equally between the sun and our planet from a gravitational perspective. With a solar cell, you can go beyond that point and you can stay on that sun-earth line. And why that's interesting is because every once in a while the sun has some activity um, and you have what's called a geomagnetic storm that races towards the earth and can do a lot of damage in space and, and on earth. Um, so a really interesting application in the medium term is putting a, a, a fairly large solar sail beyond that point of equilibrium to give us an early warning system when there's, there's a threat to earth. Um, in the medium term, you've also got things like space-based solar power. So can you put very large deployable structures in space and beam down energy? So um, you know, one of the components that's going to be required for that is how do you deploy these large structures in space? How do you control them? And how do you optimize um, for beaming energy down to Earth? Um, but in the short term, which is where we're spending most of our time, let's take um, three specific use cases. One is um, giving additional efficiency to spacecraft in geostationary or in lunar orbits. Uh, so we're having a few discussions on that point. Um, a second point is around deorbitation. And the reason it's interesting is if you have a large, you can deploy a large structure in space, you can also do it quite close to the Earth to deorbit spacecraft much quicker. And and this is becoming an important topic because the laws are changing. And previously, you could leave stuff in space or you could try to take them down within 25 years. But now you need to take them down within five years. And you don't need a very large drag sail to be able to deorbit something um, very efficiently towards the end of the line. But that wouldn't also require the, the drag sail application. It doesn't yeah. sound like something that would require your sort of like super high tech expertise no. of like, no, th exactly. that's just like a, a sail, right? It, it's it's just a sail. It's a subset of everything we need to do. We don't need to we don't need to navigate okay. with it. We just need to deploy it, and that will deal. So with it, very, it requires very some of your expertise, like so for example, your like your exactly. packing expertise. But you don't have to yes. have the super high tech material that's super light exactly. but reflects sunlight. Okay, exactly. And it's and it's also kind of all the things that we're building to build the sails. So we're building the tools to be able to industrialize this and make. If we need mm -hmm. to make 200 deorbiting sales, we can do that with the tools that we're building. So, so that's, that's also interesting for us on, on a very short-term basis. The, the mission that's probably the most exciting for us in the short term is prospecting what's known as near-Earth asteroids. So these are asteroids that are very close to Earth, or well, sorry, I should say these are very distant objects, but very close relative to other asteroids in our solar system. And they're they're basically floating a little bit ahead or, and a little bit behind our planet. And these are asteroids that are super interesting from a scientific perspective, but also from a commercial perspective. Scientifically, because it gives us answers to the origin of life. Uh, we've just returned some samples from an asteroid called Bennu that had carbon and water within the clay of the material. So these are things that are very interesting. But 
from a commercial perspective, you've got all sorts of different types of asteroids. And some of them are, for example, metallic asteroids that have iron and nickel, but also contain rare earth metals like platinum, gold, iridium, palladium, and other types of things that are in concentrations several times higher than what's found on Earth. So as an aside, you know, it, it's crazy to think that today we're, we're, we're extracting things in a very polluting way on Earth. And all these very high value things are just floating around in space, mm. uh, not too far away. So someone wants to harvest that. Someone's going to want to commercially exploit that. But the first thing you need to do is actually kind of create the map of where the resources are and what's actually exploitable. And a solar sail can go to one asteroid fairly efficiently, but then keep on going to visit other asteroids. So in the history of humanity, we've managed to kind of go fly by or touch 17 asteroids. And in a single mission, you know, maybe you deploy five or six solar sails. Um, maybe in a single mission, each one can go and visit two or three asteroids. And, and then you, you're starting to build that map of the resources in space. Absolutely. And so again, and, and asteroid mining, of course, is also something that's you know, it had sort of its heyday 10, 15 years ago for startups, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, as we now know, was too early, unfortunately. Yes. But it's, yeah. it's now coming back. And uh, there's companies like Astroforge, which also is on a previous episode, uh, wanting to um, commercially exploit asteroids. Now, uh, you mentioned OSIRIS-REx and, and Bannu. So I think, again, to kind of give us a sense of the comparison here between the propulsion methodologies. Mm -hmm. From memory, I think OSIRIS-REx, it took something like a little bit over two years to get there. And I think it was like a couple hundred million kilometers away. So if if we did that with a sail, kind of what sort of you know time would we talk about? Well, we, we've got a very good data points because NASA had a mission called Neostout uh, that was actually launched on the Artemis mission recently, but unfortunately they they didn't manage to establish the communication link with the satellites. Um, but it was called Neostout because it's near Earth asteroid scouts and with dimensions very similar to what we're doing, they were going to get there in two years. So very similar to a mission that would cost billions of euros or dollars, um, but for a fraction of the cost. And that's, that's what's interesting. Obviously, the, the OSIRIS-REx mission is, is hugely ambitious and, and very impressive. Um, but there's definitely a space to, to go and do these things for a fraction of the cost. And at least do flybys with spectrometers and cameras to to see what's there, what it looks like. So, so leaving aside, you know, some of the um, let's call them orbital applications, like the drag mm -hmm. sails for deorbiting. If we're talking for these, like you know, longer in terms of, I guess, both distance and time missions, is it like all space agencies, or what does your go-to market look like here? I guess you could even do what the Planetary Society has done. You could just come up with your own missions and try to get them financed. But how are you guys thinking about the go-to market there? Yeah, so, so there's a few options. And I think when we started, the only option to us was space agencies. And, and the model there is, okay, well, you want to do all this science in space because ultimately that's, that's what you're, you're focused on, um, but your budgets are limited. And so every once in a while, you can do these flagship missions cost billions of dollars. Uh, what if we told you to do not all that science, but a fraction of that science, a percentage of that science for a very small percentage of what one of those missions would cost. Would you be interested? And so everyone said, yes, we'd be interested, um, but you need to prove it to us first. And so this is, you know, in our roadmap, we first need to demonstrate that this works. It's a viable and reliable technology. Um, and, and so that was 
our only go-to-market, the only one we did think of. But since having started, we've now been approached by larger, more established commercial companies saying, um, this is an interesting capability. Can we add it to what we currently have? Or can we look at some other missions in cislunar space that use solar sails? Um, and you mentioned planetary society and, and crowdfunding. Um, there are a lot of people who are very supportive about what we're doing, um, including some, some companies that don't do very much in space today. So our sponsor, for example, we, we've got a corporate sponsor on our first mission. They are called CMA CGM, and they are a company no one's really heard of, but they are one of the three largest maritime shipping companies in the world. Um, they've reduced the cost of moving something from Asia to Europe to a fraction of a euro per kilo. So it's, 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 it's really um, the lifeblood of many economies depend on transport. And they're thinking, well, where's, where are the needs moving to? And on Earth, um, we have certain needs, but what about in space? How do we do transport in space? How do we do logistics in space? And, and there are lots of ways to do it, but we are one part of that roadmap. So imagine um, being able to have a kind of motorway of solar sails accelerated by lasers between Earth and Mars and transporting things for a much lower cost per kilo than other forms of transport. And, and that's really, you know, that's kind of opened our eyes to more commercial interests who are willing to support us to, to demonstrate and to prove that this is a viable transportation method. Because, you know, who knows exactly what the needs are going to be in the future, but we know there's going to be a need for transport. We know there's going to be a need for power. Uh, we know there's going to be a, a number of needs to build that space economy. And, and we're just providing one of those elements, one of those bricks. And so, as you mentioned, one really important element here is the demonstration. I mean, it's, it's funny, usually when we talk to space startups, it's uh, we talk about the IOD, the in orbit demonstration, because people, <laughs> that's what matters. For you guys, as we already discussed, it's actually, you should demonstrate it outside of the orbit. Mm -hmm. So when are you going to have your, um, what would it be, your EOD, your extra orbit, or your deep, I guess, your deep space demonstration? What's the plan for the mission there? Yeah, so so we, we have one satellite in orbit today, which is... 530 kilometers are so still within the Earth's orbit. We're using that as a test bed for operating a satellite, a refining our GNC algorithms. And ultimately, that's going to deploy and deorbit very quickly as a drag cell because there's still atmosphere at that altitude. Our mission um, to above 1,000 kilometers is scheduled for 2025. And we are going to be going up on SpaceX. And then an orbital transfer vehicle is going to take us up even further, so about a thousand kilometers. And from there, we will deploy the sail and go from a point A to a point B in space using only the solar sail. And we need to make sure that it's undeniable that it's the solar sail. Um, it needs to be measured sufficiently accurately so we can actually say, well, the performance of the solar sail was this. And this is what our customers want to see. So that's scheduled for 2025. Okay, so that's kind of the, I guess, one of the most important relatively near-term mm -hmm. milestones you guys are embarking on. What does the rest of the um, timeline look like for the company? And then also, I was curious, sort of like, if everything goes well in the near term, what do you, what is your guys' like long-term vision? Like, what do you, what do you want Gamma to be in like you know, ten years' time or so? Yeah, so the the plan is at the moment it's a sequence of missions with increasingly 
ambitious objectives. Um, so our second mission is this mission we've just talked about. The next one, we're planning to go to an asteroid and we're planning to fly by an asteroid and take some, some imagery and send back some interesting information. Um, and would that be for a customer or on your own? The or discussions we're having at the moment, yeah, the discussions we're having at the moment is uh, kind of parallel track between space agencies. So can we carry scientific payload uh, that's interesting and, and they would pay for that. Um, but some of the interest is more commercial. So saying, okay, well, if we can create this pirate's map of where the treasure is in space, that's going to have a huge amount of value. And so some of our investors, some of the investors we're speaking to, and some of the commercial companies we're speaking to are, are interested in that dimension. So it will be it will be financed possibly from a combination of uh, an agency plus a commercial company and some commercially minded investors. And to get to your the rest of your question, which is where do we want to be in in ten years time? Um, the, the real the thing that drives us the most is around going far and learning as much as we can about space. That, that's what motivates us. Um, so the, the dream is to be able to have an industrial facility that can produce solar sails solar sales at scale um, at a fairly low price points. And therefore being able to have, instead of a mission sending one spacecraft to one asteroid, we can send 10 spacecraft, all the same specifications, just with different destinations, and do multiple um, multiple missions with the same technology. So flotillas of solar sails uh, racing through space and doing science and doing commercial, um, com having commercial objectives. And then further on, then we can really dream and we can say, well, let's leave the solar system. Let's dive towards the sun, pick up tremendous speed, and build the fastest human-made objects in the history of mankind. And then it's funny, flotillas, it really would be like back to the future, right? Sort of like that, um, you know, aged about 500 years ago, the great exploration age on the oceans on, on Earth. Yes. <laughs> so again, it's it's very, um, very sort of romantic, um, nice notion. So in, just in terms of um, your business model, so right now, are you basically selling the sales by the unit or are you selling entire missions or or both? At the moment, we're selling missions, but the more near-term commercial applications, we would sell a component, which would be the sale, but also the algorithms to control it. So half the team is working on the software side, and that's the algorithms to control a very thin, large sale in space. Understood. And so as we come towards the, the end here, some of our, you know, questions we we always ask so uh, first about your local ecosystem you guys mm -hmm. i've been to your facility actually um yes sort of accidentally because i was visiting our portfolio company next door yes. to Lab. <laughs> i didn't realize you guys were neighbors but it was mm -hmm. nice because i could come and, and, and see your facility how, how do you find a local space ecosystem in paris the, the ecosystem is is very good so i've worked in many different countries and i i chose to come to france because there is a an interesting tech ecosystem. And from an engineering perspective, they're very good engineers who are specialized in aerospace. So you have quite a wide talent pool. Uh, you also have a rich history of space. And by that, I mean, there's some, some fairly large companies. There's a, a space agency, the CNES, 
been very supportive. Um, so they give us money, they give us expertise, and they give us facilities. So I, I don't think, honestly, we could have done as much as we've done without their support. Um, and on the next mission, we're collaborating with the DLR, so one of the teams at the German Space Agency. So the ecosystem has talents, it has money, and it has facilities. Um, so I'm, I'm really bullish about the French tech ecosystem, but also the wider European ecosystem. I think, I think we still have some things to catch up with relative to the US, but, um, but there's talents, there's people with ambition, and, and increasingly support from agencies to support startups and the tech ecosystem around. Yeah, and I must say, it's, it's, it's also nice that not every single French space company is based in Toulouse. I mean, nothing against Toulouse, but uh, <laughs> Paris, is just, yeah. Paris is just a very nice city. Ne ne never mind the apartment sizes we already talked about. <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah. speaking of speaking of talent, are you, are you guys currently hiring? Uh, we, we are hiring um, a couple of people at the moment. I think we've got the team that we need to, to go for the next year or so. Um, okay. we'll, we'll be looking for a mission manager. Um, you know, slash systems engineer who can help coordinate some of the projects we've got in the pipeline and, and possibly someone quite senior who's done GNC for more distant space. So guidance, navigation, and control. We've mm. got a, a steady flow of incredible people coming out of universities who've been studying solar sailing for their PhDs and they come out and they say, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> where, where do I go? There aren't that many places to go. Uh, so we've got a very rich talent pool with, with some very smart people working on the topic. That's great. And so the last couple of questions we always ask, the first one is, uh, if you weren't doing gamma sort of, um, and, and you're a person who obviously knows the space sector in general very well. I mean, um, you know, we're both also mentors at Creative Destruction Lab Space Stream. So, you know, I know you see and know about a lot of other space companies and what they're doing. What else do you find interesting in space right now as a business? Not specific think, companies, just as like themes. Yeah, themes uh, in space manufacturing. So super interesting. At the moment, everything we put into space, we need to build on Earth. And that doesn't necessarily make sense. If we're, if we're in space, we can start to build much bigger things, and much more ambitious things that have direct implications on Earth. And you know, as one example, um, imagine a world in which we completely screw up our climate and we cannot control the temperature on Earth. One of the solutions is to put lots of little solar sails in between the sun and the Earth and reduce the amount of energy coming to Earth. Um, but to do that, we need a lot of them. And the best way to build a lot of them is to have facilities in space that are mass producing solar sails. So many, many topics like that. And I think, how do you, how do you build things in space? How do you create an infrastructure also for humans down the line. I think there's a lot of people and many don't realize this, but it's not just the agencies going to the moon, going to Mars. There's a number of private companies financed privately with private customers um, trying to get and build all that layer of infrastructure. So everyone is dependent on everyone else in the space ecosystem. We need the infrastructure to be built across the value chain and we're providing one part of that on the transportation side um, but there's a lot of other companies doing exciting things too and our traditional very last question which is always the same um is about science fiction and at the very beginning you've already mentioned um, some science fiction authors as part of the even the history of of light sales mm -hmm. what, what are some of your favorite science science fiction works 
Yeah, I think I have to say, I mean, space to me is almost like science fiction. I, I look at a photo of a, a nebula or you know, famous photos like Pillars of Creation, and that to me just sounds like science fiction. It looks like science fiction. They, they should be in the Louvre. You know, they're beautiful, they're complex, there's violence, there's sheer scale and time and space. Um, so, so I get quite uh, excited when I see things like that. And I think uh, science fiction to me has played a huge part in my early life. Um, and most importantly, I think, was, was Star Trek as a young child, the next generation with Patrick Stewart and Jean-Luc uh, Jean Picard. And they are aboard a ship and they're navigating far away, discovering new things, exploring strange new worlds, seeking out life um, to boldly go where no one has gone before. And that's, that's what we want to be doing. And I think, I think that has played a huge part um, in, my, in my view of space. So yeah, I, I think science fiction, space is science fiction, and science fiction has has driven many of us to join this industry and try to, to see, to go further out and explore these distant lands. Yeah, no, great. And you, you, as you can imagine, you're certainly not the first person who mentioned uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. But listen, thanks so much for coming on. Really good luck for your next very important mission, and I hope you just keep going from there and you know, do, for example, the, the, the asteroid sort of like prospecting missions to create that pirate map i think you may want to maybe you can even do like a little pirate flag on your spacecraft on your <laughs> sail it'd be very cool but best of luck it was a pleasure to have you here Raphael, thank you very much well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast if you like this podcast please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as itunes you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.